is the legislative filibuster other than a tool that requires new federal policy to be broadly supported by senators representing a broader cross-section of Americans, a guardrail, inevitably viewed as an obstacle by whoever holds a Senate majority, but which in reality ensures that millions of Americans represented by the minority party have a voice in the process. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muckrake Podcast. I'm Jared D.H. Sachs. I'm here as always with Nick Houseman. Uh, we got a treat today. We got author Jonathan M. Katz, whose new book, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. Uh, he's going to come by, talk about his new book. We're going to get in the weeds on this stuff. Before we do, though, Nick, we talked about this last week. We kind of knew where this thing was going. Um, you know, it kind of played out exactly as we expected it would. Uh, Joe Biden's agenda for the Voting Rights Act, trying to uh, somehow or another fight back against the Republican push to disenfranchise uh, people of color and Americans. Um, Schumer had a plan. It was harebrained and, and, you know, just crazy enough that it just might work. Uh, we knew that Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema was going to stand up and basically kill this thing in the water. That is what has happened. Uh, it feels bad. It's not good. There's a lot to say about it. But uh, what, what's your initial reaction here? Um, did it feel so bad to Kristen Cinema, Kirsten Cinema, that she was like on the verge of tears speaking to the Senate the other night? Um, I, I'm still troubled and can't figure that out. What was happening there? But you, did you sense that when she was? saying your speech that she was on the verge if of you, crying? If you think that I am I hate myself enough to subject to myself to watching videos of Kirsten Sinema speaking, you, you you don't know me very well. <laughs> forgive me, forgive me. I thought, you know, like every people who wanted to rubberneck an accident, uh, they all they no, watch I, this. I, listen, I, I gotta be honest with you. These speeches don't matter. These speeches aren't real. They're not heartfelt. They're, they're PR performances. Um, they, they are simply there to misinform you and lead you away from what's actually happening, which is that Kirsten Sinema and Joseph Manchin and other Democrats and other Republicans who oppose this stuff are bought and sold by the wealthiest special interest in the United States of America. Everything else is just whipped cream on top of shit. That's all it is. Well, speaking of misinformation, I'm going to kind of throw out a, a, a sentence from her speech because I thought that was really interesting. Because remember, this whole thing is centered about uh, the filibuster and how important historically this is for like the minority, you know, people in the minority to be able to have a voice and represent people. Um, right. You know, we have to remember that the, the senators, the, the Republican senators, um, even when they've had control of, of, the, of the Senate, represent at most 43, 44 percent of the country. And that was on purpose. That was how it was set up. But here's exactly. what I think she said that I had to write down and, and uh, transcribe, uh, you know, as uh, in honor to, to Kimmer, who's the transcription of our, of our did stuff. You, did you sit down and listen to Kirsten Sinema's bullshit and type it out? I did. At least this part. Wow. I did. Wow. That's ready? It's good okay. stuff. Here we go. She said, um, you know, she's really she's concerned, by the way, Jared. She really is just concerned. It's incredible if if we could somehow, Nick, if we could harness all of the concern <laughs> yeah, and just somehow or another power cities with it. I think yeah. I think we might just power our way out of this problem. Yeah, it's like Monsters, Inc. We just need to be able to, you know, to use that. Just bring that it concern. together. All that concern. If you could listen, I think the concerns could do it. But if you could get the thoughts and the prayers. Oh, 
you know, all we would need is um, is uh, Collins from uh, from Maine. Uh, just her concern alone would power like the entire United States. It would be States. incredible. <laughs> we would basically we would solve power scarcity in our times. That would be that would be incredible. So she's concerned. Okay, right, good. so she says um, a tool. She's describing the filibuster quote: a tool that requires new federal policy oh, to be I'm broadly sorry. supported by senators representing a broader cross-section of Americans, a guardrail, inevitably viewed as an obstacle to whoever holds the Senate majority, but which in reality ensures that millions of Americans represented by the minority party have a voice in the process. That's what she describes it. That's the, it's a tool that she describes, uh, and that that represents uh, you know the minority because that they're the downtrodden and the people who are going to get walked over. Now, is she lying? No. Okay. And she's not, but I want to point something out that the word minority is doing a lot of work because we've been taught that the minority, and this is how the United States of, of America was set up, how our halls of power was set up, how the government was set up, how everything was set up. We were told in our education that this was about making sure that there wasn't like, we didn't run over vulnerable populations. Right. Like we didn't hurt people who could be overwhelmed. But in truth, the minority that was to be protected was the wealthiest individuals, particularly white, wealthy people. In this case, what Kirsten Cinema is saying without saying it. And I would love to know, because here's the thing I haven't figured out about her, because she's terrible at this. She's really, really bad at the game of politics. I would love to know if she understands this. The minority that she is speaking of are corporate CEOs. It's lobbyists for the, the most powerful special interest in the United States. That's the minority that she is talking about protecting. Here's the thing, because she also says, I fully support the notion of protecting, you know, the rights uh, and understand the voting rights, understand what states have done in the past uh, to, to disenfranchise people. She like throws all that stuff out there for people. And then but then she somehow insists that the only way they can possibly do that is by getting the 60 votes. That's that it has to be a, a voting process like we would, you know, pass this law and not Which buy the happen. filibuster. What? Which could happen. Couldn't happen. It, it, yeah, it wouldn't. It, we, we, I mean, we couldn't even get 60 votes when they had 60 votes for like for Obamacare. Like, you know, would it, wouldn't it be interesting, Nick? And, and tell me if this tell me if this helps. Tell me if this tell me how this checks out. Tell me tell me how this falls upon your ears. Are you ready? My glasses are off. Tell, tell me if this, because uh, maybe I'm talking crazy. Maybe I'm taking crazy pills here, Nick. Maybe maybe I'm talking straight bullshit. But do you think that there is any possibility that the same people who are lobbying and giving money to people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, these CEOs, these libertarian millionaires and billionaires, these these companies who are interested in never, ever having anything pass through the halls of power that would actually help you or me or regular Americans, would you think that there's any possibility that those are the same people and the same organizations that are paying think tanks and institutes to cook up anti-democratic policies and laws and also to, I don't know, get together and talk about how to possibly overthrow elections and sort of undermine democracy. Does that sound crazy to you? Well, 
all right, let's do a little crossfire, a little counterpoint. Love it. Because here's the thing. I get the, the corporate interests and how nefarious that can be as it relates to the way we govern this country. However, I'm telling you, by the way, that this is actually what is happening. I hope people have figured out that this was a bit. But well, yes, that's yeah. what is happening. But, but, but I'm not so sure I follow the rationale behind like corporate elite America being so concerned about vote, the Voting Rights Act specifically. Honestly, I, I, I feel like they make money independent of whether or not the elections, you know, they can, they can protect oh, the elections. Oh, they do make money independent of the elections, but they can make a whole hell of a lot more money. So one of the things that's been coming out recently about January 6th is that all of the strategies and all of the ideas have been paid for by these people. They have been meeting to take advantage of these opportunities. It's not that they love Trump. It's not, you know, that they're best friends with Trump. It's not that they're part of the cult of Trump. They enjoyed the fact that Trump dismantled the government. They enjoyed the fact that Trump appointed people. The Heritage Foundation told him to appoint that would sell off our natural resources and basically dismantle, you know, all public services imaginable. They love that. But they also want to make sure that they're able to take control of the government a little bit more, that you're not going to get people in there who are able to rock the boat and somehow or another I don't know, raise taxes, pass regulations, or do things. It is it is taking advantage of a window that Trump and the Republicans have opened for them, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, it's, and, it's, yeah. I, I, you're right. I, I guess I was a bit half-baked on the idea because you're right. In the, in, even just regulations alone, yeah. uh, knowing that the Republican Party would dismantle as many as possible, which then directly really leads to a lot more revenue for, on, that, on that side. Okay, that, I, I guess I can follow that, and that there is that inherent notion of, uh, you know, it's it's funny that the, that the party uh, that has the reputation of being, you know, the the, the people's champion, the Democrats in theory, uh, couldn't, you know, and they tried to somehow also been on that side of corporate America too, and like that, or they couldn't win that PR war because, listen, it's not like the Democrats have been awesome at you know at keeping regulations in place and protecting the environment either, but. Um, okay, so I can see that, and that's a real problem. Uh, and, and people like Cinema, you know, here's the problem: they we've had in the past them rail against the filibuster and recognize how uh, it, it, it's a, uh, a white supremacist, you know, yep. thing. If you if you trace the the history of it, it it's not this hallowed, you know, um, no. tradition in the Senate that was supposed to be you're protecting something. And again, Wait, here's, are you telling me the golden eagle of liberty didn't fly down with the plan for the filibuster? Rah, rah, rah. No. <laughs> Just, just a, a beautiful golden eagle shined by the Philadelphia Liberty Hall. Just, just yeah. all, all that straight bullshit. You're telling me that this wasn't cooked into the pie at the very beginning? That's With weird. Lee Greenwood in the background. No, um, no. Lee Greenwood sucks, <laughs> like, We haven't mentioned him in a while. I felt like we had to no, drop it in gotta, there. Yeah, we got to get Lee in there every now and then. Yeah, but, um, you know, I, I kind of forgot what I was going to say. But, yeah, that that is um, – the the fil the history of the filibuster is so uh, wrought with you know the, the need to get in the way of actual yep. voting rights anyway and and, and and equal rights for everybody like that's why it's just so galling that they're using this that this notion this grand notion of like protecting it now the biggest problem I have is that okay someday the Democrats are going to be in the minority and then they're going to need the filibuster right that's that's the big overwhelming you know uh, you know caution about all this stuff. Well, here's the thing. We know that the Republicans would do away with the filibuster, to, you know, in a, to, in a minute. 
as soon as they have a chance when they want to do it, right? Like that's sort of what I would say they do. Now, the only protection we have against that is that they're such ineffectual idiots that even when they have control of all three branches of the government, they can't even, um, they can't get shit done anyway, right? Like that's the craziest thing is all they got done under Trump would be the tax cuts. It's all they could figure out and make it happen. I think that's shifting. I actually, so here, again, I hate to be the wet blanket, man. I hate to be this person. But one of the reasons they weren't able to get a lot of that done is because the Republican Party before Trump was a libertarian-focused group, right? It was your Paul Ryans who basically wanted to come in and carry out austerity. Meanwhile, all the Patriot Caucus Tea Party people were just wild-eyed freaks, you know what I mean? <laughs> who wanted, who that basically the the ancestors at this point of Marjorie Taylor Greene and her gaggle of assholes. They were in the middle of a civil war. This is why Paul Ryan. That's why John Boehner couldn't remain speaker. That's why Paul Ryan couldn't remain speaker is because they were at odds about what they were actually doing. You had all the serious Republicans who were like, "No, get rid of all taxes and all regulations whatsoever." And then other people were coming in. They're like, "What about the mole children?" <laughs> you know? And and that is that is part of the radicalization. And and to be frank, when they are able to gain some sort of a majority at this point, you're going to have a bunch of people who are basically on the same page, which again, and this is important, is a healthy dose of bullshit of things like CRT and other things. But it's also a bunch of things that are cooked up by the Heritage Foundation and all of these think tanks who go ahead and say this is this is what's going on. And I want to talk really, really quickly. I, I don't know if you've seen this. The the founder of the Oath Keepers was just arrested for sedition in January 6th. He is probably going to jail because the Oath Keepers tried to overthrow the government of the United States of America and were idiots about it. And basically were like, hey, we have weapons. We're ready for this. Right. They mm-hmm. they, they they tried to overthrow the government like not well, but they did. Do you know who's not going to jail? Do you know who isn't even being scrutinized except for in sources and articles that only like people who pay way too much a clo- close attention to this pay attention to? The corporations and the think tanks who put all this together, who came up with the legalese, who pull the strings behind all these scenes. Meanwhile, we're talking about Kirsten Cinema, who is just just a just a, a a figurehead at this point, somebody who can stand up and draw all the ire, and she loves it. She <laughs> loves being that person, and it suits her, and it helps her politically and economically. She's soaking up all this money. Meanwhile, Nick, we're sitting here on Martin Luther King Jr. Day of, of, of 2022. Voting rights right now have completely stalled. Biden's response to it was to say, we'll try again. On top of that, COVID is an absolute mess right now. And and I'm telling you that I don't I don't know how liberal democracy handles this. I don't know how America in the position it's in handles this. We've got people going into stores. They can't find things because, again, the supply chain has been absolutely screwed. Corporations have taken advantage of the moment to raise up inflation. And here's the thing. The best the Democrats have are to say, look at Kirsten Cinema. we wish we could reason with her. Look at Joe Manchin, we wish we could reason with her. If they are going to survive, and I mean this, and I, we, do you remember, we talked about this when Biden got elected. We said, we're not going to be a partisan show. We're not going to stand up in front of this thing and pretend that things aren't. We're not going to cheerlead. We're going to call it like it is. Biden has lost the script at this point. There's there's no message out there. If the Democrats 
are going to stave off a, a incredibly well-funded, well-orchestrated neo-fascistic party that is backed by all of these people that we're talking about. They have to give an explanation for what in the hell is going on that's better than Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin have completely, you know, uh, uh, undercut everything. There's got to be something else. And, and th- we know what the problem is. We know what the solution is. They can't say it. They just can't possibly even try and come out and say it. Yeah. Joe Biden is weak. And point, he's, yeah. he's older. Yeah. And all the things that are fraught with being older in terms of being an orator that he really struggles with. Uh, and he's already coming in with a bit of a disadvantage. And so uh, Kamala Harris Nick, is... Nick, he yeah. told us he was the one guy who could fix this. Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, yeah, of course. We, we're not supposed to listen to anything they actually say during the campaign, are we? <laughs> but I know, but that was that's the problem here. That yeah. was his actual promise to the American people. He said to the American people that we are facing... Uh, what, what, what's the line? It's a crisis of, 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 of the perhaps. American soul. Yeah. Right. And he said, I'm the person who can reach across the aisle, bring people across. He can't. That's not that's not where we are right now. There has to be a shift or a change in how we talk about this. And the Democrats are just I'm sorry, they're standing around on MLK Day being like, well, can't really hold a vote at this point. Yes. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, listen, uh, the, the, what we need is someone that, that could, you know, remember, the, the whole idea of, of democracy is kind of like a state of mind. We talk about this all the time. Yep. So that's why orators and those people who can inspire are so important because they kind of make you forget about how ineffectual government really can be. And listen, I, I want to defend a lot of the, there's a lot of programs out there that benefit a lot of people across the, the, you know, the landscape. And that's why it is important to have government and it is important to have regulations and these things. But, you know, Ronald Reagan wasn't exactly lying when the nine words, you're, the most frightening words you're going to hear are, I'm from the government, I'm here, to, what can I do to help? You know what I mean? Like, there is a notion of truth to that as well. And so as a result, like, they just kind of destroyed all of these, the, 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 the whole, the, the mindset we would require to keep democracy functioning properly is gone, right? And the, everything's been pulled away. When we see this, uh, when we hear Jonathan Katz talk about when in his book, you know, you really start seeing how the sausage is made and you really start to realize, like, you know what, maybe, maybe this hasn't been what we thought it was this whole time. I, I certainly Trump pulled that away and let us see the, the scab underneath. It's not even a scab. It's a, a festering wound. wound. Yeah. And, and, and here's the thing. You know, when I was doing my research on uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal, one of the things that that really struck me in all of this, and and I want to be, I want to put my cards on the table. That's right now the only thing that's going to save this, which is somebody who is willing to come out. And if you read FDR's speeches, particularly his addresses and his campaign speeches, he came out and he said, "I have to tell you something," which is that the wealthy and the powerful have completely captured the country, completely captured the country. And they're instilling anti-democratic trends in this country. They've taken over the government. They've taken over all ways of life. And he would say to Americans, I know it and I know that you know it. And guess what? Everyone around America is like, yeah, that is what has happened. Like, it's very clear that that's what's occurred. And he said, I'm going to go and I'm going to fight him. And, you know, as we talk about with cats and as I keep finding, like, the, the wealthy put together political action groups. They, they tried to overthrow his presidency in a fascist coup. And he, he weathered it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like he, he was able to stand up and he was able to, to take, take this shit on. And right now to just say, I don't know, folks, we just don't have the votes. That doesn't do it. 
Do you know what I mean? That there's no, like, oh, you want me to go out and find you more people based on the fact that you haven't been able to do this? Like, that doesn't work. Like, that's not a cohesive message. That's not a clarion call. That's not a rallying cry. That that doesn't do anything. It's honest to God, and I, I would be interested to see how you feel about it. It feels like a national malaise part due. Yeah. Well, here's here's the, 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 the contrast that I can offer up to you. When Trump ran in 2015, he had a broad section of senators condemning him as this ridiculous person, right? Yep. Yep. And within, you know, a year of him becoming president, all of a sudden, all of them, all of them were yep. completely in line, ready to vote for whatever he told them to vote for. Now, you whatever can you can surmise how and why and what the circumstances were. And they were probably some of them were pretty nefarious. But, you know, that is a, not a bad example of at least, you know, a, 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 like a strong leader coming in and, you know, leading the, the party that they're in charge of. This is what Biden is not doing. It can't do. It can't figure it out. Yeah. Where's the punch at cinema or mansion? Right. There's a fear. The honest to God fear is if he says anything cross to them. And this is what administrations do. And Democrats have been terrible about this forever. If, if I say something to them, they'll leave. Yeah. I mean, Joe Manchin has an open invitation to join the Republican Party. Mm hmm. Uh, I assume Kirsten Cinema would would be more than welcome, although they might not put up with her shit like they, 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 Wait, they have, you oh, want to elaborate on that or not? Yeah, I don't know if the Republican Party would want Kirsten Cinema. I, I, I don't um, even know if a cinema family reunion would want Kirsten. I mean, Sinema. are we talking like family values? I'm talking about in general. Okay. I'm talking about having somebody like this around. Mm -hmm. I mean, she I'm sure she would fit in with the Republican Congress, yeah. but but as a Republican senator, that's not what they do. Yeah. Well, they actually weirdly enough the Republican Party stratifies what their personalities are. Like the the absolute crazy assholes are in the house and you, the senators are the ones who have the closest ties with these people. She sort of weirdly straddles that. But yeah. the the Democrats particularly the Biden administration are terrified of saying anything cross to either one of them or these other Democrats who are afraid of of stepping out behind the filibuster. They can't talk about neoliberalism, they can't talk about corporate cash, they can't talk about what's happening in the economy. They, they, but they have to discover courage. They have to discover boldness because this, this ain't cutting it right now. Right. I mean, because I think your point is the, the, what they're, the opposite, like if it doesn't work, then you're still in the same place. But at least Dude, you might you have a chance. You don't lose shit at that point. Yeah. And, and again, look, 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 did, did Trump ever say anything bad about uh, Ted Cruz? You know, actually, I think Trump was pretty respectful of Ted Cruz. Sure. And I, you know, I can't imagine that he ever would have accused was, his dad of killing Kennedy and his wife of being a dog. Yeah. How about uh, how about Lindsey Graham? Did he ever say anything? Uh, did he ever give out Lindsey Graham's cell phone number? So here's the thing about this, and and everything that you're saying here is exactly right because it is psychological. Politics is psychological. So much of it has to do with with which narrative is is winning or which narrative has control, right? If you make life hell for Mansion or Cinema beyond people being upset with them on Twitter or making memes or whatever, if you actually say, you know what, I don't know that there's room in the Democratic Party for you. Matter of fact, I don't even know if you're officially going to be a Democrat in the next primary. Like you start pushing those things, you start making them lightning rods, that changes things. That, that shifts things. And you're exactly right. At this point, you're going to end up in the same spot if it doesn't work. And I don't know if you saw this. 
Tom Friedman's out here floating a unity ticket in 2024 between Joe Biden and Liz Cheney. And first of all, shut the fuck up, Tom Friedman. Like, my God. And the moment, like, let's say, for instance, that that were to happen, which it's not going to happen. And if it does, I think we're done. Yeah. I think the show's... I, I'm not going to say that because I don't want I, I don't want to jinx it, but it might happen. But, but okay, yeah. So like, if that happens, you think the Republican Party is just going to be like, yes, absolutely, this is where we're no. She's going to be persona non grata. These people have beltway brain. They've got worms in their heads at this point. Yeah, this shit is crazy. Well, Cheney would switch parties, <laughs> right? She would switch parties, which and I'm not even sure they would allow, let. They, they would. They no. let everybody in, but Jesus Christ, of all the people, this, that's like. Nah, it's not. I don't want to use a really horrible dictator example, but but just a Liz Cheney joining the Democratic Party would be Nick. Give me. I don't know. I need the a Democrats lined up to shake Dick Cheney's hand. They lined up to shake Dick Cheney's hand. You have to have principles. You have to look at these war criminals and say, no, you have to look at these people and say, no, like, my God, I just, I wish somebody would discover a spine. All right, everybody, we're going to go talk with Jonathan M. Katz about his new book, and we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back. Uh, I got to tell you, uh, we, we have a real treat today. Uh, we have Jonathan M. Katz, who is the author of Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Waking and Breaking of America's Empire. Uh, I, I would go through your accolades, Jonathan, uh, but I'll just go ahead and say that you are one of the most respected and best nonfiction writers out there. Everybody should know who you are, read all of your work, and uh, it's an absolute treat. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'll t that's uh, that's a great intro. I'll, I'll could you just follow me around and do that everywhere I go? I'll I'll, I'll be your hype man, and I'm more than happy to do it. Uh, particularly as uh, I think you've written a really important book here. And before we get into the the substance of this, um, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about the the subject or the opening uh, that you use to to get into the subject, which is Smedley Butler, who is one of the I, I think one of the most amazing and underappreciated American figures ever i first came across him like i think a lot of people in around 2003 as wars a racket started being handed out you know on the uh, student quads uh as as we were talking about what was getting ready to happen in iraq but could you could you talk a little bit about smedley butler and the project as a whole and how all of this came together yeah so butler was a marine uh and he was he lied about his age at 16 and joined the Marines during uh, the war in Cuba against Spain. And from there, he basically went to everywhere that the United States invaded and occupied from 1898 until the eve of the Second World War. And then at the end of his life, the last 10 years, uh, he became an anti-war, anti-imperialist activist who basically spent all his time trying to keep the United States from getting involved in another war, which ended up being World War II. Um, and uh, also in, in his spare time, blew the whistle on a fascist plot to overthrow Frank Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah. You know, just a couple of... I mean, there's more. Just a small, just a small thing, yeah. Well, I, I just want to say, I'm glad that you, you went ahead and, and broached this, because, you know, I've been talking to people, I'm, I'm writing this book myself, and I've, I've been talking to people about the business plot. Mm -hmm. And to to tell people who have not heard about this particular 
circumstance uh, around Franklin D. Roosevelt and the fact that uh, some of the wealthiest and most powerful people in the United States of America um, tried to overthrow the presidency and install a, uh, a fascist dictator. Can you get into this? Because it sounds so batshit crazy and made up, but uh, unfortunately it's, it's, it's none of those things. Yeah, and a lot of people thought it was batshit crazy and made up at the time, but it, it definitely had a lot behind it. So basically... In 1933, uh, the the year that Franklin Roosevelt became president, um, a representative of a bond house, a stock stock brokerage, basically on Wall Street, started trying to court Smedley Butler into overseeing this coup plot, in which basically Butler would lead a column of like half a million World War One veterans armed with rifles by the Remington Arms Company into Washington, D.C. They would intimidate FDR into either resigning or delegating all his powers to a cabinet who the plotters would name. Um, and basically the idea was that in so doing, they would undo the New Deal, um, which you know had already been sort of ratified by the voters at the ballot box in 1932, um, and you know wasn't going to be up for for reelection until 36 and and uh, the businessmen however many there were who were behind it you know were fairly convinced that it was going to be popular enough with the masses that they wouldn't be able to get rid of FDR and and the New Deal otherwise and you know they obviously so the reason we know about it is because Butler he went to Congress blew the whistle testified under oath. Uh, he enlisted the help of a newspaper reporter um, to, uh, uh, you know, investigate this sort of somewhat independently. Although obviously, I think they were kind of working together. And, you know, long story short, you know, the the the, the congressional committee said that you know all of the pertinent statements that Butler had made were true. Um, you know, I can I can go into to reasons why I think you know there's a lot of circumstantial evidence around it that, that shows that this really happened. Uh, it is hard to say it was behind it, like exactly how high up in the business world it went. If all of the people who Butler implicated in it were actually involved because Congress basically cut its investigation short. Um, but, you know, more or less, I think we can definitely say that, that Butler, Butler, Butler thought he was telling the truth. He wasn't making this up. And there was a lot of reason to think that he was telling the truth. And and there were other things that were happening in the world at that time that lend more credence to this as well. Well, you know, Jonathan, as you're reading the book, you know, you kind of want to say, wait a minute, it's, it's just not possible that there's this one person so deeply involved in so many of these different events that you, you describe that are major events in the history of the, of the country. I suppose you start thinking about more recent mm -hmm. times and you see th people like the Bushes, you know, have cut across decades upon decades of our of our major, you know, uh, engagements across the world. So maybe it isn't that hard. And I thought, was it hard for you? And I thought one of the best parts about what you do with the book is, was it hard for you to kind of draw parallels and going back and forth to today and what's happening now versus what they were doing back then? Uh, and um, in, in terms of, I guess, American imperialism. So it was disturbingly easy to draw parallels between the, the, the period that I'm writing about and today. So the way that I wrote Gangsters, um, it's it's got a, a major historical component. I think it definitely could be shelved as a history book. 
but it's actually two books in one more or less i went around the world um trying to follow the trail that butler and his generation of marines had blazed um to both understand what they did right because the the memory of the wars of the early 20th century have been almost entirely memory hold in the United States, but they're still remembered in other places. And so it was one way of sort of recovering these things that had been silenced. Um, but it was also a way of understanding what the consequences of those wars were elsewhere. When I started writing this book, so I started writing it, I, I, I got the idea for it, I think in like 2015, and I like, you know, sold it to a publisher in 2016. And at the beginning, I thought like I was going to be writing a book about how the wars of Smedley Butler's day created like the neoliberal empire overseen by President Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're and having then some other conversation things. at that point. Yes. Yes. And then and then and then some other things happened. And what I realized. And so as so as I was writing this book, you know, the things that happened in Butler's era, those those were, you know, more or less frozen in amber, um, although, you know, obviously the perspectives on them could change. But the things that were happening in the contemporary frame of the book kept accelerating and spinning out of control. And I start, and I realized, you know, over the course of writing it, that I was writing a very different book than the one that, that I had set out to write in the first place. Um, you know, I think that I... I don't know, for instance, you know, I, it says in, 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 the, in the subtitle that I'm writing about the making and breaking of America's empire. I think that the, the breaking idea was sort of in there, like maybe originally, but like it wasn't, it really, it really came through over the, you know, the five years that I was writing this um, as just sort of everything just sort of started, you know, falling apart. Um, and, you know, even the business plot, you know, I knew, look, I'm writing a book about Smedley Butler. I need to talk about the business plot somewhere. But I wasn't sure, like, how much play I was going to give it. Is it going to just show up at the end? Because if I write it sort of chronologically according to the arc of his life, it's in the last chapter. Um, and I had already started moving toward the idea, um, you know, I think around the election, I think it was probably you know, November, December of 2020, um, I realized, okay, the business plot is going to have to be probably in the prologue. And it was while I was sort of working on the prologue and the last chapter that the full, like, you know, Trump coup began. And then January 6th happened. And it was like, as if I was seeing, you know, <laughs> the business plot in real time. So, yeah. So, I mean, the parallels, I, I, I can't even begin to say like how many things how many tendrils there are between butler's era and today whether you're talking about um the ways in which you know american interventions in china there are two chapters in china you know the ways in which china you know the, the chinese government uses its memory of our invasions to uh to, to inform its policies today um to talk about the way that you know the the rise of, of fascism and 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 the attempted rise of fascism in the 1930s the way that that is echoed today the way in which the imperial wars in which butler fought are really you know the the, the closest analog and the best way to understand the wars uh, that, that that we're still fighting today in in syria and Libya and Somalia and, and just got done with in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, it's it's one of those projects where, like, I wish it was less relevant <laughs> than it is. Um, but every every single page of this book, you know, 
And and often I sort of am doing that work for the reader, trying to make these connections. But every single page of this book is is just disturbingly relevant. I mean, the problem is that we're, you're you're diagnosing a, a long, long process here. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I enjoyed that you said memory hold in terms of war. I was just having this conversation the other day. When we talk about American wars, we talk about maneuvers. We talk about who won. We talk about, uh, you know, the, the the official story of why we end up in a war. And, of course, we we kind of wink and nudge and nod about what we gained from it. But when you actually start looking at, at the history of this, and Butler is – I, I actually think a really incredible Rosetta Stone for it. Like all of these conflicts with, you know, we, we can sit here and say World War II, obviously because of Pearl Harbor, but all of these conflicts have corporate capitalistic objectives. There is gain, a territory to gain. There are resources to gain. There are new markets to open up. And when you actually start to crack that egg and you look inside, it these inexplicable things that people seem, uh, I, I don't know if you caught this, but David Brooks has no idea what's going on right now. He <laughs> he, he just spent like, I tell, think tell me more. He just spent like 2000 words in the New York times being like, something's wrong, but I have no idea after a career of trying to explain what's going on. But if you actually crack that egg and look inside these inexplicable threads, they become really obvious very quickly. Right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and 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 that was, you know, a lot of the work that I was doing in Gangsters, which is part of what took me so long to write the book, as I was trying to, I had to, you know, verse myself in the history of each of these countries, nine countries are, are, are sort of featured in the book. Um, and then also, you know, like the historiography and the fights, you know, within the historiography, and then also just trying to like, unravel and kind of read against the grain. Um, you know, what happened, like what got us in there? out there if you do if, if you do the work going through each individual war but i don't think that anybody had put the at least the wars that i'm talking about had put them all together in sequence and also showed the extent to which it's the same people being involved time after time so you know i, I think part of this has to do with just like how fewer people were were around at the time and also just how small the Marine Corps was and how small like the, the the sort of this rogues gallery of capitalists who end up everywhere. But like there's this guy um, named Roger Farnham who shows up in all of these different places. Um, two highlights are that he is um, the bag man for William Nelson Cromwell. Um, who is maybe familiar to some people uh, because of the the law firm Sullivan and Cromwell, which is still still around today. Um, and Sullivan and Cromwell is sort of they they are one of the uh, all time you know villains, depending on how you tell the story, or heroes, I guess, if you're an imperialist, in sort of the story of America's empire, especially in Latin America. Um, uh, you know, they are they are maybe even well better known to to some students of American history um, because two of their board members, John Foss, um, used it was their connections on Sullivan and Cromwell and Sullivan and Cromwell's client United Fruit. Um, that was sort of the, the 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 movement behind the scenes in the coup to overthrow uh, Jacobo Arbenz in in Guatemala in 1954. The founder of Sullivan and Cromwell, William Nelson Cromwell. He, he was this big dude in the uh, plot to separate Panama from Colombia for purposes of building the Panama Canal. Because essentially, we need, Teddy Roosevelt decided we needed this canal in order 
to you know connect the Atlantic and the Pacific, to connect the Atlantic and Pacific fleets, and to connect the Atlantic and, and Pacific shipping lanes. Um, but Colombia, which owned Panama, it was the state of Colombia, didn't want to give the Americans just like complete control over this canal zone um, to the extent that the Americans wanted. And so William Nelson Cromwell basically just fomented a secession plot um, with the with the cooperation and, and to some extent at the instigation of some Panamanian elites. That's another thing that I'm trying to do in the books. I'm trying to show the ways in which this is not just America acting on the rest of the world, but like the rest of the world has its own stuff going on. And the we Americans find are... the people. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so and so um, uh, uh, Roger Farnham is this he's this kind of rogue banker. Um, who, uh, you know, he's kind of been moving all over like C Central America and he's also an ex-journalist and he's kind of this go-between between Cromwell and the Panamanian conspirators. He plants a story in, in the newspapers in the States where he basically says like, there's going to be a, <laughs> there's going to be a coup on November 3rd, 1903, um, uh, you know, watch for it, and then it happens, right? It's just, it's, you know, and 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 um, he's he's the one who sort of prepares the ground for this. He then moves through all these other things, and then he's also in Haiti when in 1915, um, Haiti, which got its independence from France, France has imposed this crippling indemnity uh, in order in exchange for diplomatic recognition, the Haitians have gone to the Americans to pay back the indemnity to get some loans and Citibank is worried that the Haitians aren't going to repay their loan goes to uh, William Jennings, Bryan, who's secretary of state and says, you know, Hey, I have an idea. Why don't we send the Marines ashore? They'll rob the central bank of Haiti. They'll take half the gold out and take it to a vault in wall street. This sets Haitian politics on its ear a Haitian president is assassinated for the last time that a Haitian president was assassinated until the summer of 2021. And then it's Medley Butler and the Marines invade. And so like you can tell, like, you may be as exhausted as I am just having told those little bits of the story. And that's like, those are just scratching the surface of those individual stories. These things are really complicated and it's not, it's not, it's not enough to just say like, Oh, there's this, you know, shadowy cabal behind American foreign policy and they're the ones pulling the strings. Um, but it is important to understand, like, the inner workings of how American elites find their partners in these countries and how, you know, different people and different rivalries are all playing uh, against one another and how these figures like Roger Farnham and Smedley Butler keep ending up in the same places at the same times. And and it's it's a complicated story, but it's a fascinating story. And that's and that's that's what I've spent the last couple of years trying, trying to tell. You know, Jared will, will uh, take. Uh you know, every opportunity to light up, you know, corporate imperialism as much as you possibly can, and rightfully so. And uh, I see that in the book, but I also think what hit me harder, like a two by four in the face, was just the blatant racism that has not only was like occurring, quote unquote, but like was just like accepted for probably like thousands of years. This isn't even like a little blip in our history. So I'm kind of curious how you feel are are those two things like separate in your mind as you went through these following this guy um or or is there like a cause and effect here like just to throw my two cents out there it definitely feels like this is rooted in just blatant racism across the board white europeans deciding to just inflict all sorts of horrible things across the, the world 
Well, I think a, I think a real fast, a real interesting thing that that Jonathan just brought up is like Haiti. Haiti was absolutely hobbled from the very beginning of its independence, and then everybody took that economic and political hobbling as proof that they couldn't handle themselves, that they yeah. couldn't take care of themselves. So all of a sudden, you have self, you know, self fulfilling prophecy, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to look at. It. Um, you can see that, for instance, in um, uh, you know, it, so at the beginning of the book, right, in in 1898, essentially, um, when Americans are trying to decide what are we going to do with the Spanish colonies that we're seizing, right? Um, because there had been sort of an appetite to uh, swallow Cuba. That went back to the founding of the United States when originally it was looked at as sort of a, a place to expand slavery or a place that already had rampant slavery um, that we could sort that, that the slave power you know could could, could add to, to to its constituency. Um, but what what happens is by 1898 1899 the super racist like you know guys like Pitchfork Ben Tillman. Who's just one of the just the most disgusting? I can cuss on here, right? Sure. I think we already cussed. Like, just he is just one of the most r bluntly racist motherfuckers that has ever existed in American history. He helped. He like he literally was an architect of Jim Crow. He literally oversaw a, a a surge in lynching as governor of South Carolina. He then is on the the Senate floor inveighing against the annexation of the Philippines because he's basically like, if we annex the Philippines we're going to get all these non-white people. And he, he lists them all, you know, by, by, by racist category. Um, and, and it ends up having to be a compromise between the super racist neo-Confederate, I mean, essentially isolationists, and the equally racist but different racist expansionists like Teddy Roosevelt, who was 100% a white supremacist, but hated the, he hated sort of, he hated the, the Confederate, lynching people he was he he wanted to he was like he was the the waspy although he was like of dutch descent but he was but he was the 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 sort of wasp style paternalistic but still murderous i think i think of them as cocktail racist yeah they're the ones who are at the polite society but they're more than willing to work with the people who have the straight white supremacy Exactly. And then they're also like, we, you know, and if we have to commit a couple of genocides, we'll do that. Right. Well, no, because but, we're the adults. Yeah. But lynching was just too, like, you know, uh, visual, right? Like, we, we can't have that being seen, right? Like, that's, that's low class. Yeah. That's exactly. low class. Exactly. So, I mean, that, so that's one example. And what ends up happening there, by the way, is that the Supreme Court ends up uh, coming up with a series of rulings that are known as the insular cases, uh, which are still in effect. Um, they still affect life every day in Guam, Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, you know, et cetera. Um, but basically they said that, you know, well, just because something becomes a territory of the United States doesn't mean that people there deserve rights. And they don't they, they can't get constitutional protections. They can't get re representation in government. And that's that's a compromise that's acceptable to somebody like Pitchfork Ben Tillman, because he's like, oh, well, as long as I don't have to, like, sit next to a Filipino congressman who then will have equal voting power to me, then then I'm OK with it. So that's that's kind of what I mean. But so so they're complementary tendencies. The thing, the place where the place where I think they converge, um, and I, I, don't, I try not, I'm not trying to like get you know way out of my lane and, and get like psychoanalytical here, but but like, like I think like the Freudian like like untying of 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 the contradictions here is that all of these are basically permissions to do what we want, right? So capitalism is and 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 the search for for markets 
is is it's permission to break all the bones that you want, you know, kill all the people that you want, rape all the women that you want in 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 with the excuse of this is what the market wants, this is what consumers demand. White supremacy is sort of the same thing. It's it's operating under a different set of logics and often ends up with a different set of ultimate results, but the means are basically the same. It's still like we get to we get to break all the bones we get to rape all the people we get to kill all the people and and we and we ultimately are you know held harmless you know we we can we can do whatever we want because we're the ones who are in charge and that and that's what and and you know that really and that was you know a thing that i i write about butler and this is a thing that i think is going to maybe uh scandalize um, fans of Smedley Butler, and I, I, I count myself as a fan of, of Smedley Butler. I mean, it would be very hard for me to have spent as, as much time as I did uh, with him mentally. And also, like, I got to know his granddaughter, who has like a picture of my daughter in her house. Like, it's like things got things got close. All of that said, Butler, like, he's racist. I mean, like to a certain extent, he's a man of his time. But what does that mean to say somebody's a man of their time? Because like. He's he's living at the same time as you know W. B. Du Bois. He's living at the same time as Ida B. Wells and, and William Monroe Trotter. Like there are like there are other people who are around who have different perspectives who who are that he's doing. It was obvious to it was obvious to to many people in the United States, um, you know, including like the staff of the New Republic that was writing uh, uh, you know exposés on the U.S. occupation of Haiti that the things that Butler was doing were, were wrong. And Butler is there, you know, he's throwing around the N-word and he's, you know, he's justifying paternalistically, you know, killing people. And he's doing it in a different, like, there are nuances here, like there are people who are much more white supremacist than he is within the Marine Corps, but they're all on the same team and they're all doing the same thing. And it's, you know, it's even at the end of his life, honestly, in terms of racism, I mean, Butler, he ends up. You know, he ends up sharing uh, stage like he's on a stage with Langston Hughes at like an anti-war uh, uh, rally. Um, you know, he's he is uh, you know he's giving speeches to you know Benet Brith. Um, so you know he's he is he is uh, rehabbing. You know, he is he's much more he's he's he you know some people would consider him woke right at his time in his time like you know for for, for doing things like that. Um, but he never he never develops he develops kind of a class analysis. He develops sort of an idea that that American elites are preying on working white people and especially soldiers and using them and, and sort of sacrificing them to get their their, uh, you know, their goals achieved. Um, but he never really he never really develops a, a sociological race, racist or, or racial analysis in terms of understanding understanding those parts of what he was part of but it, it, you i mean you know you hit the nail on the head it, it's it drives a lot of what of what he and the marines are doing in those days so i, I want to drill down real fast before we let you go uh just on something that you were talking about and this is something i i think that is becoming clearer and clearer but i think has been um intentionally hidden behind a lot of history intentionally and unintentionally which is that the white supremacy that we're talking about people who are very expressly racist and hierarchical about race 
they are many times in league with the capitalistic and liberal structure, which actually takes all of that white supremacy and hides it behind market forces and considerations and basically allows a lot of this blood, a lot of this breaking of bones, a lot of this subjugation to happen away from people as they can sort of imagine themselves as not being a part of it. Is, is, yeah. is that Does that hold basically as part of this thesis? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, look, this is, you know, it, it is, there are, there are a bunch of different motivations who are, who are sort of doing all these things at once. And sometimes they're competing with one another. Sometimes they're across purposes with one another. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think ultimately that is, I think that's ultimately something that you see throughout this. I mean, um, you know, certainly uh, you look at, you know, some of Butler's fellow Marines, um, you know, that one, one of the ones who, who appears a lot in the book is a guy named Littleton Waller, Littleton Waller, Tazewell Waller. Um, he's oh, a, he he's a, for Haiti. I was just reading, he, reading his quotes about Haiti and they are terrible. Yeah. I mean, so Waller comes from, he comes from an FFV, you know, first family of Virginia. Um, his ancestor, Colonel John Waller, um, enslaved Toby Waller, who, uh, Alex Haley identifies as Kunta Kinte in, in roots. Um, so, I mean, like this guy's, you know, his his history with 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 racism, white supremacy goes way, way back. And yeah, I mean, he 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 undertakes essentially a low level genocide in the Philippines um, in in revenge for a uh, uh, the massacre of some American soldiers at a place called Balangiga uh, on the island of Samar. And he's, you know, instructed to turn the island of Samar into a howling wilderness um, and, you know, essentially kill every male over the age of 10. Um, he ends up getting court-martialed and acquitted. And, you know, at the court-martial, he's like, well, we didn't kill everyone over the age of 10. Like, I didn't, I didn't follow those letters exact, those orders exactly. Um, but, but then, you know, and then, you know, he's in all these other places and, and, he, and he ends up in Haiti and he's just like, let's just kill all these Edwards. And uh, one of the other things that Butler does in, um, uh, in, in Haiti at that time is he ends up creating counterinsurgency doctrine. Um, and the way that he does that is because he's approaching this with a much more Northern and I think maybe more legible in, in 2022 style of racism where he's just sort of like, I'm a Quaker. He's a Quaker, by the way, I'm a Quaker. You know, my grandfather's fought uh, for the union in the civil war. Um, I never liked slavery and I don't like lynching, but I also don't see these people as being my equals, but I still can see them as being more individuals than a guy like Littleton Waller can. And so what ends up happening is he is he's bringing down he's bringing down the structure of capitalism. He's bringing down the structures of American society. He isn't he isn't messing with those. Um, and you and you see, I mean, things I was reading in the archives, you know, in you know 1915, like they're they're just they're blatant, you know, in in uh, uh, is is you know one of the businesses that uh, starts up in 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 the U.S. occupation, like they they you know issue direct instructions not to allow any guns to 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 go to black people. That only white people should be allowed to, to to you know hold guns like on on the security team and stuff like that. And Butler Butler has no problem with any of that. He's he's perpetuating all of that. And what he what he ends up doing militarily is because he's able to sort of look at individuals as being more individuals and give them sort of more respect as you know, individuals than somebody like Littleton Waller can. 
then he ends up being able to sort of implement an even more effective method of control over Haiti and over Haitians, which ends up becoming more brutal and allows the United States to continue a military occupation that lasts for 19 years, which is a record that was only broken recently by the United States and Afghanistan for, for uh, you know, continuous uh, military occupation. So, I mean, you know, it's, that's that, one of the things that I'm trying to get at. And, and this is something that we see, you know, in, in debates about, you know, race and wokeism and and you know trying to understand like racial america 2020s you know it's yes it is it is it is it is, it is important to understand the difference between somebody who is just you, it's important to understand the difference between like a derek you know chauvin i don't know how i actually pronounce his name but you know chauvin <laughs> the guy i don't know if he even deserves to have his name pronounced correctly like it's, it's important to understand the difference between a guy who like literally puts his you know knee on George Floyd's neck and 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 crushes the life out of him and and just you know uses racial epithets and uses that kind of violence and you know somebody who you know kneels and puts on a kente cloth but then you know continues uh you know supporting the prison industrial complex and like doing all the other things that like perpetuate white supremacy but it's also important to understand how ultimately even though those things are sometimes across purposes sometimes those people hate each other they ultimately can sort of end up moving in the same direction and again that was something that that was something that butler even in his self-critical period at the end of his life that was a, a, a level of analysis that he just he never had because you know it it, it just it was he didn't have access to that kind of thinking he wasn't he wasn't blessed with the kind of sources that that some of whom existed at the time but he just wouldn't have had you know the, the bandwidth or the understanding to read well uh jonathan you know uh, jared and i have a runner throughout our, our podcast throughout the years where he will very cogently you know break down the essence of something about our the, the history of our country and i will pause and i'll turn to him and i'll say jared why do you hate you know, hate this country so much <laughs> And I kind of wonder when you look at, you know, even just looking at the, 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 the chapter list of your book, and it's like, you know, the greatest hits of some of the worst atrocities you can imagine the United States committing. It's like, you know, Rambo wants everybody to love them as much as, you know, the vets love the country. How do we get to this point where, like, we have to face these things, but still try and, you know, not want to, I guess, you know, leave it? Because we can't love it based on what we know was going on in the past so so brutally, and in the face of like how the Constitution had promised such lofty ideals, and then completely and utterly ignores those when it deals with anybody else besides you know the people that they wanted to apply it to. Yeah, I mean, so Butler's answer to that is is that you know Butler never lost faith in in America, even even during his extremely critical phase. Um, his his critique was that uh, that that the America that he had been part of and the things that he had done in America's name didn't live up to the ideals that that he had been taught America stood for. Um, you know, he he joins the Marines again at the age of 16 because he thinks that he's going to be bringing democracy to Cuba. He thinks he's going to be fighting against this horrible Spanish Empire and the Spanish Empire was horrible. I mean, they were. They they just invented concentration camps and they were they were you know introducing this brutal form of waterboarding um, in the Philippines. Then the Americans then 
end up opening concentration camps and doing the same kind of waterboarding ourselves. But, you know, that, that, you know, the first idea was right, which was that like that imperialism is bad. That kind of colonialism is bad. That kind of racism is bad. And, and, you know, Butler is, Butler is accessing a tradition that exists in America and, and goes back, you know, to the founding. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent, that's that's a lot of people's answers. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk lately about obviously about, you know, the 1619 project, you know, it, you know, especially Nicole Hannah Brown's, uh, you know, introductory essay. But that was really I mean, it's fundamentally a a a, a somewhat conservative and and pretty uh, it's 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 a pretty like hardcore patriotic like take on America and what America could be like a real like a real like you know uh, uh, you know uh, anarcho leftist you know Marxist Leninist would be like would would reject a lot lot of her argument that like oh America was never this like America and you know and and so you know she and Butler and and a lot of people I think you know me to a certain extent like. You know, I grew up with I grew up with this vision of of sort of what America can be, and you know, to a certain extent, I I still subscribe to it. I think that, you know, again, it's important, and and this is you know one of the things that you know I was trying to do in this book, um, and it's you know why I sort of spend as much time as I do, you know, parsing the different kinds of racism and parsing the different kinds of 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 killing and parsing the you know different kinds of crimes that are being committed, um, you know, because. You know the, the United States, and and I, you know, I I, I cited a, a number of sources that, that make this case very uh, persuasively. You know, the United States helped inspire Nazi Germany, right? And 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 the Nazis took like especially their race laws. Um, you know, they took a lot of of inspiration from the American authoritarian, you know, especially Jim Crow, uh, you know, race law tradition. But that doesn't mean that the United States is Nazi Germany. Like we we somehow avoided, you know, in part maybe because, you know, people like Smedley Butler at at key moments, you know, kept the fascists from just like taking over entirely. You know, we we, we you know, the, the Nazis have been among us. Right. Those kinds of people have been among us. They're still among us. They're trying to take over now. But they but they but they remain a, a very powerful and very destructive minority and they are one of a multiplicity of voices. And this country is also full of people who are like, no, we actually believe in democracy. We actually believe in pluralism. Uh, we, we actually believe in, you know, social democracy, maybe even socialism. Like, you know, somebody like FDR, who, you know, you'll encounter in, in Gangsters, you know, he's a friend of Smedley Butler's. He's in Haiti during the occupation of Haiti. He's involved in like this kind of corrupt scheme to like, you know, profit off of Haitians. But he, you know, as he as he's matures a little bit more and then when he becomes president, he looks and sees what's happening. And he's like, actually, we need a little bit more social justice. And, and I need to be like a little bit more of a traitor to my class, which is which, which is what sort of ends up, you know, getting people wanting to, to, to take him down. And so, you know, it's it is, you know, maybe maybe somebody who's 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 a better radical than I am will just be like, oh, you know, cats, you're just making excuses. But like. I, I really do think that, like, you know, the, the the good thing about America, the good thing about this country is that we have had these currents of people who have been fighting for social justice and who have been fighting for, you know, for equality, economic, racial, gender, et cetera, um, throughout our history. Uh, and, you know, sometimes they're winning and sometimes they're losing, but they haven't 
been counted completely out of the fight yet. And Smed- the, the, the big tragedy of Smedley Butler's life is that he did so much on a personal level to ensure that uh, you know the forces of reaction and violence and exploitation uh, and murder um, were 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 strengthened and given power and and were given this empire over the course of his life. So that by the end of his life in the 1930s, he does blow the whistle on the business plot. But you know his his whistle blowing on the military industrial complex essentially falls on deaf ears, and his ability to you know prevent a war from breaking out between the United States and Japan, uh, you know, which say what you will about like you know the outcome of of World War II and like whether history would have been better like this or better like that. A lot of people suffered, especially in the Pacific War, and that was you know that is not as noble a war as 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 even the war in Europe or as a, 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 a war as Americans often like to think that they that it is and butler was butler was completely ineffectual at trying to undo the things that he had done and a lot of us find ourselves in that situation i mean as we're you know facing climate catastrophe and as we're facing the you know the, the degradation of of democracy and all these other things like a lot of us have paid played a a role in helping create these structures that now we're you know to some extent powerless to 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 you know tear down but the fight is still going on and you know as long as there are still some people uh and and hopefully hopefully a growing number of people i don't know but maybe not but as long as there are still some people who are are are, are able to sort of you know carry uh you know that torch of the past and 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 grab those those ideals even if they haven't been fully realized in the past and and try to make something better of them then you know then you know we can keep ourselves from from just you know falling into the abyss i couldn't agree more and everybody we've been talking to jonathan m katz the author of the new book gangsters of capitalism smedley butler the marines and the making and breaking of america's empire it's coming out i believe the day this podcast comes out congratulations on that where can the good you. people find you uh, so I, first of all, I have a newsletter. Uh, it's called The Racket, for obvious reasons. Uh, you can find it at theracket.news. Um, it's a newsletter and podcast. Uh, right now, I'm doing a series uh, called Gangsters Movie Nights, where I'm having guests on to watch movies about uh, things related to, to themes from the book. The first one we did was uh, Spencer Ackerman and I did uh, Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay. Sure. Um, and you can find me on uh, Twitter at Cats on Earth. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. All right, everybody. That was Jonathan M. Katz. Uh, again, his, his new book, Gangsters of Capitalism, uh, I think is a must read. I think it uh, brings things into pretty incre- incredible clarity, which is uh, shocking. What happens if you look at history from, uh, you know, realistic angles? It's it's engrossing because and the, the brilliant, I mentioned it earlier was that he can do this zelig like thing with this guy uh, in every major you know imperialistic conflict we've had in that time period, but it also then connects directly with what's going on now, and he brings that in together. I mean, you know, he's got two chapters on Philadelphia alone, and then the one on Philly about uh, police officers, and the, and we get into the, almost the history of the, of policing. Um, it just continually reinforces where we came from and what the the foundation of this country is and why that's the motivation to change, right? That's not like we have to hate the country. It's we know what we did and this is why we have to continue to progress. Yeah, and and you know, I the the opening segment of this I think was appropriately frustrated. 
I think there's a reason to be pissed off right now. I think there's a reason to 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 want something different at this point. But I want to I want to say this. This is a note of something that I've noticed. So Katz's book I think is really really good. The book I'm working on I feel like has a lot of similar threads, a lot of the similar incidences, uh, a lot of discoveries that I made. Katz is talking about, but it's not just that. I'm hearing so many people start to reconsider history and start to reconsider what the problem is right now, which is something that we've been doing now for a couple of years. We've been tracking this thing down, trying to figure out what's going on. I think that we've come together with a pretty good understanding of where we are, where we've been, and probably where we need to go. But I'm hearing it elsewhere too, man. And it it feels like the scales are starting to drop off, off of the eyes. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's... It's starting to feel like the people are putting the puzzle pieces together and understanding how we've arrived at this point, what the problem is, and also what the threat is, too. Like, we've talked about this. The media has started to – they've started to begin to understand that something's bad is happening, right? They're they're at least starting to consider the possibility of all these things that we've been talking about for two fucking years – I was going to say six years, but I guess it's... Well, yeah, no shit. We've been on this for six years at this point. Like, it's starting to seep in. I want to believe that there's time. I want to believe, much like Katz is saying, that once we get some power and movement and we remember that we can change things, I do think that things will change. And I do think that there's an incredible amount of hope. But that's why I'm pissed off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. if, If you weren't pissed off, I think that you just roll over and you're just like, fine, whatever. Let history pass us by. It's it's done. It's over. I'm blackpilled, whatever you want to call it. But I don't I, I, I don't know. I feel like there is an anger building that is productive. Yeah. Does that make sense? There, there's one side of history you want to be on in this whole thing. And it's very Amen. clear what side that should be. I'm pissed off because we're recording this on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I was, even did a little bit of a deep dive on him and, and assassination. And it, but it just reminds me of what he stood for. In, yep. And then, you know, up until 1968. And we're still dealing with the same exact shit yep. today. We're still dealing with people of color and black people being murdered by police officers and not having equal rights. Um, you know, listen, the, the, the most ironic thing of all this is that a lot of these um, right wing Republican people will say, well, we had a black president. So that means we don't have any. We don't, we've already progressed. We've, we're there. And it's like it's it's just as, almost as bad. We don't have lynchings anymore. But it's all well, still, we got different types of lynchings. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, there were a bunch of lynchings, I, you know, at some point in the last couple of years that were there in the news a little bit. So it's like, you know, um, and then Jonathan Katz's book also just brings it into such clarity when you read it about it. Like I said earlier to, to you guys, it's just it's just it's not even imperialism to me. It's just out and out racism where these are savages that we can't even begin to trust. First of all, they can't trust to live, you know, on their own and, and without being, you know, incarcerated or whatever, much less have a right to vote for anything. I mean, that's yep. just, you know, that's 10 steps too far for these yep. people. And um, I, I think maybe we need more in, in the popular culture, like maybe more movies again. Like I, I remember there's a moment where there's a lot of movies about slavery and about this whole thing. But like, I just know how traumatic it was as a kid seeing this and how how important that trauma was to impress upon myself how evil that mindset was. You know, you, it's the guy who comes in on the, you know, in the in the first scene, and you right away you know, like in, even though you mentioned Django and Chain when you were talking, you you right away you know this guy is sickening evil and racism racist. We I feel like we need to see it in their face. We need more of this to understand how bad it is. 
Well, and this is one of the reasons why it's so important that we talk about things like CRT and how history is portrayed and how it's given to us. Martin Luther King Jr., and this is an important day. I was posting about this. We need to remember how hated he was. Mm -hmm. He was despised. He was probably one of the most hated men in the United States of America. And up until the point that he was assassinated, he was constantly surveilled by the United States government. The documents I've been reading lately discussing him, I mean, not just they not just only thought that he was a communist agent, but they thought that he was more or less like uh, a, an antichrist type figure who's going to lead a black liberation movement and he needed to be neutralized, right? And you start looking at all of this and you start realizing that why do we have a Martin Luther King Day? It's supposedly to sit here and reflect back on his legacy. It's been completely co-opted. They've taken, and this is the really disgusting thing about the powers that be and the, these capitalist forces we're talking about. The same people who hated him, the same people who would have been happy that he got killed, the same people who used law enforcement to harass him and hurt his fellow civil rights movement members. Those same people can now post about Martin Luther King. They can say, you know what, look at all the progress he made. We don't need to do anything anymore. Did you know we had a black president? Racism is done in America. And then what do they do? They benefit from the, uh, the remaining white supremacy and prejudice and inequality in the system. It's grotesque. This is why we have to learn actual history and not just conventional history. We have to look at what actually happened and understand it because these people weaponize it. They use it against you. And Nick, tell me if I'm wrong. One of the most grotesque things that I ever realized was the idea that they could take someone like a Martin Luther King and then twist his legacy and use it against what he stood for and, and and it's it's so in your face and it's so obvious now but it doesn't make it any less grotesque uh in 68 when he was killed uh his approval rating uh, uh disapproval rating was 75 percent tell me is that is that high uh oh oh yeah that's high i mean like oh. trump had never gotten that low uh as far as his approval rating right so here you have a guy and and these are all the same these are these are all the parents of these right-wing people now right these are all yes. the, it's rooted in this and so the yes, the idea that they, they would they ever reference, yeah. We talked about this. They didn't want to look at it on the TV. They right. didn't want to think about race. They didn't want to think about white supremacy. They didn't want to think about exploitation. He made them. That's the problem. They didn't want it on their TVs. They didn't want their kids talking about it. They didn't want their kids learning about it. They they hated him because he made them look at themselves. Right. And it's the same idea when they, they get to decide, they get to frame the argument however they want to in a shameless manner. Yep. So, for instance, you know, with Colin Kaepernick wants to kneel to, to protest, and he makes it yep. very clear why he's doing it. He wants to protest police brutality. But instead, they get to, they get to decide, no, I believe that what he's really doing is, in, you know, an affront to the flag and to our truth. They wanted to watch football. They didn't want to think <laughs> about race. That's the exact I, I I completely agree. Kaepernick was one of those things where he interrupted people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, I, I tuned in to, wa to watch a football game, and all of a sudden now I got to think about police brutality, inequality, and white supremacy. Well, like, yeah. It, it put it in people's faces. They hated. But that's. But here's my mind. They never went there. They they couldn't even oh. get anywhere near oh, yeah. what you just yep. said. To them, yep. they instantly were like, "Oh, this asshole is, is yep. you know, is a, you know, uh, disrespecting the flag and our troops." Yep. Like out of nowhere, you, th this all happened. Like how how did you even get to that? That's like jumping to the biggest conclusion of all time. But again, you can do that easily in your mind 
if you're a little bit racist or a lot well, of racist. And, and, and this is exactly why people accuse people of being, you know, uh, uh, virtue signalers. Mm-hmm. Right. Because what has actually happened in the reactionary mind, the Republican right wing reactionary mind, is that they can say, you know what, there actually isn't a problem. Those people are trying to use this to gain an advantage. Right. They're trying to use it for affirmative action so that they can get money that won't be mine. They're trying to use this to to steal elections. That cognitive dissonance that you just brought up. That's exactly what that is. It short circuits it immediately and then allows people like Trump and other racist demagogues to come in and be like, no, those people are lying. There's no racism anymore. There's no patriarchy. Those people are simply trying to get more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What, what is it? It was um, Obama bucks. Obama phones, right? That was the whole thing for a while is that he was just going to give away free things. And as a result, he was a socialist or a fascist dictator. It's that crazy cognitive dissonance, the way that they deal with it, that you just brought up is exactly how it works. And remember, those people that are railing against that would easily take a free phone or free bucks. They would take sure. it. That's fine. Great. For free, like, give it to me, whatever. But no, if it comes from a black person, or if it's going to go to a black person uh, or a person of color, oh, that's way too far. So the, the, that, that, that short circuiting that you're describing can only occur if your brain is already you know, down yep. that path of being, you know, racial, curi- racist, curious or already racist. That That's the whole crux of the matter. And you can't, um, you, you, there's no self-reflection there. Like you can't do that. And then as soon as you even try and discuss that, that notion, then you're the racist for pointing out that someone is being racist and who can't, and can't see it. Well, and that's what the Republican Party, Trump, Fox News, all these people offer. So, like, there's a lot of, of you know, inherent prejudice in people. You know what I mean? Like, they, 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 they come from certain places. They've been taught things. There are cultural things that are there. They, they, they have that ability to see the world through that lens. There's no such thing as brainwashing. Right. It's not that like a Facebook post popped up and it suddenly put a racist idea in your mind and you went with it. There has to be an openness to it, an acceptance of it, some kind of thing working in the background. Trump, Fox News, right wing, all these social media things. They they told people, no, listen to those worst aspects of yourselves. Those people are trying to take advantage of you. You're a realist. They're trying to, to do this, which is how they treated Martin Luther King, how they've treated uh, Black Lives Matter. What they keep doing is that they turn it into a conspiracy and it goes ahead and gives them carte blanche to believe that awful shit. And and it's really, really hard to start fighting that, but I, I got news for everybody, you got to. All right, everybody, I, I'm fired up. Yeah. We're done recording, we're, we're finishing this thing, and I'm fired the <laughs> fuck up right now. I, all right, everybody, go check out Jonathan M. Katz's book. We will be back with the Patreon-exclusive weekender. A reminder to gain full access to that, go over to patreon.com slash podcast. When you do that, you gain access to additional materials. You can tune into live shows. We also have a really amazing community. I just want to give them a shout out. They're one of the things that make me believe that this country can be changed. Uh, and and they're, they're wonderful, good, good people. We thank you so much. We, I, we wouldn't be able to do this otherwise. We just wouldn't. And, and we really, really appreciate your faith in us and your passion. So thank you for that. Again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. If you need us before the weekend, or you can find Nick at Can You Hear Me SMH. You can find me at JY Sexton. Fired up. Be safe out there.